Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. A good meal is a great thing. I wonder if you can think in your mind an occasion when you had a really good meal. What made it so special and good? Was it that it was nourishing I'm sure that it was. I hope that it was. Maybe it was a source of strength to you, and it built you up. Maybe in particular, it was an occasion that bound you more closely to those with whom you enjoyed the food. A good meal is a great thing. Well, the Lord God has established the Lord's Supper as a meal to do his people good. It is there to do us good personally. It's there to do us good collectively as we remember the death of the Lord Jesus. As God strengthens our faith as we look to Jesus and strengthens our bonds with one another as we eat together. And in light of that, that makes verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 so very, very sad. And if it struck you, as Katie read it to us, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. What a sad thing to read about a church. What a sad thing to read, particularly about the Lord's Supper. 
that rather than it being a source of good nourishment and building up of the people of God, it was an occasion that was harming the people of God. We're in a, a section in 1 Corinthians where, where Paul is addressing all kinds of problems that are happening with gathered worship in the church in Corinth. Last uh, Two weeks ago, uh, James took us through the start of chapter 11, and we saw they were confused around the roles of men and women in worship. And in the second half of chapter 11, we're going to look at how the Lord's Supper was confused. And then as we move on through the following chapters, we'll see they were confused about the, the, the use of spiritual gifts in worship. We'll see they were confused and wrong in their thinking towards one another. And their meetings uh, were disorderly. And they weren't doing good. So the public worship of the church in Corinth was a mess. And that grieves Paul and it grieves us. But can't we be thankful that in light of all that was problematic and difficult, God even used these problems to give us all this clear teaching about these very important matters? One uh, writer I read this week pointed out that if the Corinthian church weren't in such a mess around the Lord's Supper, we wouldn't have this precious instruction about the Supper. Isn't that a reminder that God can use even great bad things in churches for great good and his glory? So we're going to uh, work these verses, and the plan is we're going to see three simple things in this passage. We're going to see there is a problem, and that's outlined for us there in verses 17 to 22. We're going to see that there is a solution. And that's what Paul addresses uh, in verses 23 to 26. And we're going to see a challenge there for us in verses 27 through to 34. So we have a, a problem, a solution, and a challenge. And the goal, as we look at these things, is that we, as God's people, might grow as we celebrate the Lord's Supper so that it might be even more so for our good. That's my prayer for you tonight. So let's look at these verses that we might know that blessing. First of all, the problem. What's the problem that's going on here? And the problem is that division is undermining the Lord's Supper. There in verses 17 to 22. I want you to imagine, uh, I'm sure you've never had this experience of preparing a meal and you put hours into the preparation of the meal, but then the eating of the meal causes lots of problems. Someone won't eat half the food that's put before them. For others, well, they get into an argument over who's going to get to eat the last potato. And it all goes wrong. And it's so sad, isn't it? Because you put your heart into preparing this meal, and yet it's gone wrong. And that's not how it should be. The Lord Jesus has prepared this meal, the Lord's Supper, to bless his people. But the way that the Corinthians were eating it was causing harm. Now, how was that the case? Well, it was because divisions within the church were coming to the surface as they ate the Lord's Supper. We know from what we've seen of the church in Corinth, they were a very divided church. In chapters 1 to 3, we've seen all the different ways they were divided over leaders. But here, the division isn't so much over the leaders they're following... The division seems to be between those who are wealthy and have plenty and those who are poor and have little. And that division was being worked out in the practice of the supper. 
Now, to see a bit about how that was happening, we need to know how we think the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper. And as far as we can see, it seems that as they came together as churches uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they did that in the context of a larger fellowship meal. We get a sense of that in the passage because a number of little hints in it that it has to do with a substantial eating. So if you look at verse 21, the end of the verse, it talks about one person remaining hungry and another getting drunk. If you look uh, down at verse 34, it says, anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. So, so it seems that it, their remembering of the Lord's Supper, this occasion, wasn't just the eating of the bread and the wine the way that we, they would, we would do. They did it in this wider context of a fellowship meal. And in Corinth, these different groups within the church were eating different meals, and so the supper was being celebrated in a divided way. Some were coming along, and they were eating and drinking very well. Others were coming along, and they were eating and drinking very little. And so the economic and social divisions there in Corinth were being worked out in the practice of the Lord's Supper. Now, what would this be like? Well, imagine that you were coming this evening uh, to Heath Terrace, and we were going to have a fellowship meal, a service together in which we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And imagine as you walk through that entrance area, someone there directed you either straight ahead to the double doors or to the doors to your right. And in those two rooms, there were two very different meals. If you went to the right, to the main hall, perhaps where the majority were eating, well, your meal uh, was stale bread, watery soup, and tap water to drink. That was your fellowship meal. But then if you went straight ahead into the lounge area near to the kitchen, you got to enjoy a full roast dinner with all the trimmings and unlimited all-you-can-drink schlur. (laughs) And then, having had that food, you were eating the Lord's Supper after that in that divided way. And Paul is really clear this is very, very wrong. He says, verse 21, it means that they are eating private suppers. Verse 21, some go hungry, others get drunk. Verse 22, they are despising the church of God. End of verse 22, by humiliating those who have little. And this brings Paul to say some of the strongest things he will say um, about a church. Verse 22, he cannot praise them at all. Verse 20, this means that they are not truly eating the Lord's Supper. As we've seen already, verse 17, their meetings are doing more harm than good. And it's so serious because the heart of the problem is that the way that they ate the supper was undermining one of the central messages of the supper. Just uh, in the last chapter, if you have your Bibles open, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there are vertical and horizontal dimensions. And we're going to just dwell on these together. If you look at chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 18, uh, we read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 18. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Now, do you see there the vertical and horizontal elements of the supper? There is a vertical element because the bread and the wine, by faith, is a means of growing in our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says there that it is a participation in the blood of Christ, a fellowship, as we saw when we looked at that a few weeks ago. It, it is there to symbolize and to strengthen our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this vertical element to the supper, but also there, Paul, in verse 17, is really clear that there is a horizontal element too, because there is one loaf, and that one bread, that one loaf eaten together symbolizes the one body and strengthens the union we have with each other through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a vertical element, and there's a horizontal element that's going on in the supper, now, we see that same thought in Paul's language in chapter 17. He emphasizes that they are coming together as a church as they celebrate the supper. He emphasizes this, this horizontal coming together to celebrate. And so Paul is, is, is there telling them that as they celebrate the supper, it is not just about them growing in their uh, understanding and their relationship with the Lord as they remember Christ. It is also about them expressing their unity together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we might say that the supper is the great unifying act of the local church. And Paul's concern is that they were destroying and denying that reality in how they ate. What should have been a bring-and-share meal when everyone enjoys together, well, it became more like an airline dinner where the tray size and the quality and the quantity of your food is determined by your bank balance. That was a problem. Now, for, for us, as we think about this, we may not face the same outward issue but we can face the same heart problem as we come to the supper. Because what were they forgetting? They were forgetting what Christ's death meant for them collectively. They were forgetting that they were united to each other through the Lord Jesus Christ and instead were allowing division to destroy their unity. And brothers and sisters, that is always a danger for the people of God. The devil loves to divide the people of God because a divided army is a defeated army. During the Second World War, uh, the, uh, both uh, sets of uh, armies used propaganda to try and divide their opponents. And alongside dropping bombs with munitions in them to cause explosions, they also dropped leaflets on each side. And the goal of those leaflets was to undermine the unity of the people so that they might turn inward and fight against each other and so give up in the battle. And one of Satan's greatest and biggest weapons is division among the people of God. That is his propaganda bomb. So we need to ask the question, if that's the problem, how can we restore and strengthen and rebuild unity? That's the problem. Now we come to 
the solution. And it's striking here in verses 23 to 26. Paul says the solution is to go back to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ about the supper. And just as we see this, friends, see the hope in this. Things were really, really bad in Corinth. And yet Paul tells them there is a way back. Yet Paul says, do not despair. This is not something that we cannot rescue. If we go back to the Lord Jesus Christ, if we go back to what he taught us about the supper, we can rebuild, strengthen, and restore our unity together. So the problem was division was undermining the Lord's Supper. The solution is to return to Christ's teaching. And here we look at verses 23 to 26. Now, I was struck this week to think, how many times have I heard these words read in public? If you came to every communion service at Emmanuel, uh, I think that would be 24 times a year. So let's say maybe you've been to 20. This is the evening service. Maybe you've been to 20 through the year. Well, multiply that by how many times you have been a Christian. And you've probably heard these verses about that many times. But you know what struck me in a fresh way this week that maybe has never struck you? Is that they have relevance not just to that vertical relationship with the Lord, but also to the horizontal relationship with one another. And as we hear and we think about them, we are to reflect upon their meaning personally for our relationship with the Lord. But given the problems of division in the Corinthian church, we should especially see what they mean for our unity as a Lord's people. So let's look at them in that way together. We see three key aspects to what Paul draws out here. He wants us to see that Jesus' death pays for your sin. Verse 24, he says there that the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus, which is for you. The bread symbolizes Jesus' broken body for you. What's the big message there? The big message there is that the Lord Jesus did not deserve to go to the cross. It was a betrayal that started that process. In fact, you and I deserve to go to the cross because we are sinners, and that's where we should go. But instead of our bodies being broken due to our sins, the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ gave himself, gave his own body for you, in your place. So the real focus here is on the self-sacrifice of Jesus in our place. His body was given for us, for our sins. And that means something vertically. It means that we are forgiven by faith and we're forgiven by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But it also means something horizontally as we think about unity. What does it mean? Well, it means that we all stand on the same footing, do we not? We are all forgiven sinners, only accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is the, Lord's Supper is the great leveler among the people of God. It means there is no room for division along any lines. There is great unity because we all come in the same way. We come because Jesus has given himself for us. When I was uh, serving in the church in Leeds, one of the things that first struck me about Wes and the way that he led the Lord's Supper was that we had a little stage, but it was never led from the stage. It was always led from the floor. The same thing that we seek to do here as well. Why is that? It is to affirm that we all stand 
together at this table. We all come on the same basis before the Lord. There is no place for division among the people of God. The Lord's Supper is a great leveler among the people of God. Jesus gave himself for your sins. But then secondly, Jesus' death changes your relationship with God. And here we look at verse 25. We've looked at the body given for you. Now we come to the cup. And Jesus says there that the cup symbolizes the new covenant in his blood. Now, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a means of relating to God. And in the, in the new covenant, God promises that we will have this total forgiveness and free and ongoing access to God. As you read those words, new covenant, our mind should be jumping back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Maybe turn with, with me to those verses if you have a Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31 in verses 33 and verse 34. That amazing passage promising this new covenant there where we read this, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. The glorious promise there in verse 34 is that God will forgive our wickedness, remembering our sins no more. That therefore he will be our God, verse 33. And we will be his people. And verse 34, all will know me from the least of them to the greatest. What's the thrust? The thrust there, the clear message there is that, is that Jesus' death secures a new relationship with God today by means of this new covenant. Now that means something vertically, it means something horizontally. What does it mean vertically? It means free and ongoing access to God today and for always. In this meal of the Lord's Supper, God is saying you are welcome, you are forgiven if you trust in me. You can come and you can know me as your God. You can know me as one of his people, one of my people. And you can enjoy being known by me forever. So that's the vertical. But where's the horizontal? Well, the horizontal is that it means that all Christians know God from the least to the greatest. Isn't it striking, that language? What had been going on in Corinth? They had been separating the least from the greatest. What does Jeremiah 31 say? God brings together the least and the greatest in that sense. So that whatever Christian, whatever their money or status, well, they're rich because they know God. And we should all, therefore, celebrate that we all have this access by faith. And we have that together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' death changes your relationship to God vertically. And it reminds us of that equal access horizontally. But then thirdly, Jesus' death changes eternity. Verse 26, so we read there. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's particularly those last uh, few words, those three words, until he comes, that we focus on. 
Those verses there remind us that Jesus, having died, rose from the grave, that he ascended into heaven and that he will return again in glory. And that when he does, believers will enjoy eternity with him. And those who don't will know eternity under God's judgment. And do you know what's striking, friends? The Bible pictures our future hope of heaven as a great feast. Not a private supper, not a separated meal, a shared meal of believers together. If you turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah and chapter 26, when Isaiah is speaking of all that God is promising to do in the future, what do we read? Isaiah 26 and verse 6. Notice all the uh, pictures of a great meal. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And how do God's people respond? In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Notice there the picture of a feast. The feast is for all peoples, all who trust, enjoy this great food. And God's people to respond together with collective praise saying, he is our God. He has saved us. We have trusted him. Let us rejoice. Notice all the plural pronouns there. And so Paul is saying, whenever you eat and drink, remember that Jesus is coming again. And remember what that day will be like. And it won't be a private meal. It will be a shared feast. Now, vertically, what does that mean? Well, vertically, it reminds us that eternity is secure. It reminds us that because of Christ, eternity has been settled. And so we live now for that day in hope of that great day. But then horizontally, what does it remind us? It reminds us that we will celebrate all together as a people of God. That we will eat and drink together, praising God together. So the Lord's Supper is this picture of a united heavenly feast. So in those three ways, Paul is saying, go back to Jesus' teaching. That is a solution to your division. Go back to the work of Christ and see what it means for us of how that heals division, of how that binds us together, which is why the Lord's Supper is such a blessing to our unity. Because God in his wisdom has given us this reminder on that rhythm of eating together regularly that we would focus on our relationship to the Lord, yes, but also that we might focus on our relationship to one another. So friends, we have seen the problem, and that's division in the church being worked out in the supper. We have seen the solution 
to go back to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ about the Lord's Supper. And now we come thirdly and finally to the challenge to prepare carefully for this meal, verses 27 to 34. Paul can't leave it there. He needs to end with a challenge. But if we're honest about ourselves, we know this is always the hardest bit because it means we need to do something about the things that aren't right. Um, Just uh, over a week ago, um, I had to do something a bit like this. I'd known for a number of weeks that we had a block drain outside of our kitchen window. We knew that because we could uh, smell it was blocked. We knew that because in time we could see very clearly that the water was building up. But then the day had to come where I had to put on the rubber gloves, I had to lift up the drain, and I had to try and clear the blockage. And friends, to apply God's word is always the hardest bit, but it's a step we must take that it may do us good, that our meetings might do us good. And it's urgent to address this. Paul speaks of the urgency, doesn't he? Because in verse 27, he speaks of how if we get this wrong, we are eating in an unworthy manner, sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. In verse 27, he speaks of how we might be drinking judgment upon ourselves. And in verses 30 to 32, he says how it might mean that if we don't address this, God might discipline with sickness or even end our lives early, taking us to be with himself so that we may not damage the church of God. So friends, this matters. This is vital that we prepare well. And Paul has two things for us to think about as we prepare well. One in verse 28 and one in verse 29. In verse 28 he says, examine yourself. And in verse 29 he says, discern the body of Christ. Now, as we think about those two instructions, we're going to think about what they mean vertically, but particularly our focus this evening is on what they mean horizontally. Because too often, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we turn inward and think about our relationship with the Lord, and we stop there. But we need to go further and look outward and see how the supper is about our relationships with each other. So as we think vertically, what does it mean to examine yourself and discern the body of Christ? Well, to examine yourself in that vertical sense means to test your heart before the Lord, to confess your sin before the Lord. To discern the body of Christ is to ask the question, am I trusting that Jesus gave himself for me? Was he dying in my place? Is that my confidence? And we are to do that, and we could say a lot about that. But particularly this evening, we're going to think about the horizontal sense. Because, friends, a genuine reflection upon Jesus' death will affect my relationships with other Christians. And so horizontally, what should we think? Well, we need to consider how we think of other believers. We need to examine our hearts, examine ourselves and ask ourselves the hard questions as we come to the Lord's Supper. Am I holding a grudge against another believer? It's an occasion to deal with it. Do I need to forgive someone who has sinned against me? It's an occasion to forgive them. 
Do I need to seek forgiveness from another Christian who I have sinned against? It's an occasion to do that. And then as we discern our hearts, we also discern the body. And here I think we can see that that the body of Christ can both refer to Christ himself in giving himself for us, but also his church, which in the scriptures is his body. And so we need to ask ourselves the hard questions. Am I embracing my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Or is there division within my heart? When I think of other Christians, do I see them first as fellow Christians? Someone else, someone who is in Christ? Or do I think of a difference that I have with them? Have I treated some differently to others because I like them more or less or because they are more like me? Am I withdrawing from fellow members, avoiding speaking and having fellowship with them in a way that is wrong? Friends, a supper is given that we might focus on that vertical relationship to the Lord but also so that we might ask ourselves challenging questions about our horizontal relationships with each other. The supper is a time to keep short accounts with God and short accounts with each other. And this matters. It matters for our walk with the Lord. It matters for our unity as a church. But it also matters because we live in a deeply divided world. I don't know about you, but over the last week or so, there have been so many reminders of division. Maybe you, like me, were struck by the riots in France and the tensions that came to the surface. But actually, as you think about it, those tensions are present everywhere around our globe, are they not? An article I read this week had this headline, Tensions setting France aflame were not unique. We are all in trouble. It continued, emotions are simmering in Antwerp, Rotterdam, Malmo, and Los Angeles, only waiting for a spark. Our world's divided, and our politicians and experts, they offer solutions, and some of those solutions might bring temporary help, but they cannot solve the problem at its root. Because the heart of conflict and division is a sinful human heart. But in the local church, God is showing his solution. Because in the local church, God is showing what it looks like for people to have renewed and repaired hearts as they are right with God vertically. And then to see what it looks like horizontally to have reconciled and restored relationships right with each other. And friends, our world needs to see both those things. And God in his wisdom has given us the Lord's Supper that we might focus on our walk with him and we might also focus on our walk with each other. So friends, can I give you a challenge? Maybe you and I need to do something tonight.
Maybe you or I need to reach out to someone. Maybe you need to restore a broken bond. Maybe you need to repent of how you're thinking of another Christian in the Lord. Maybe that unity needs to be restored and healed and made whole. And friends, the great news is, in Christ, it can be. Because in Christ, we are one. So will you, will I, respond in that way to God's word? Our Lord and our God, as we look around at our world, we see so much division and brokenness. And we thank you that in our Lord Jesus Christ, you have given the solution to all those problems. Father, we thank you that the gospel is good news, that it is the means by which we can be reconciled to our God. We can know a relationship with you today, and we can know eternity secure forever. Thank you for what that can mean for men and women and boys and girls personally. And we thank you also, Lord God, for the way in which in your wisdom you are picturing through the local church what it means for us to have those restored relationships with each other. Father God, we want to pray that you would strengthen and build our unity as your people. Lord, if as we have looked at these verses, your spirit has been challenging us about particular things that we need to put right, Lord, we pray for grace to act upon that. And we thank you for the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in seeing that even in the church in Corinth, there was a way for these problems to be healed, that the church might be made whole. Lord, you are a good God. You have given us your word for your our good. And so we pray that you might put it into practice, that we might put it into practice in our relationships with one another, that the world may see and know that we love you as we demonstrate that love towards one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.